0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Inside Out Career Design Podcast. My name is Nicola Vetter, and I'm here with my co-host and husband, Peter Extell.
1: And our guest today is Joshua Lysick. Joshua is considered the world's best ghostwriter. He has ghostwritten 82 books and counting. He's the only certified ghostwriter who's also a certified hypnotist. His latest own book is called So Good They Call You a Fake. If you want to become an authority in your field, then listen to every minute of this interview.
0: And if you're at a what's next moment in your life where you need or want to make a change, it can be terrifying. We get you. You're not alone. We invite you to join us for our next free live online workshop, how to reinvent yourself in midlife in five steps. You can find out more and register at what'snext.com forward slash workshops. But back to Joshua. In our conversation, we talk about the advantages of writing a book, but not just any book, the right book, and how that seeds authority in the marketplace and why hypno-writing is a superpower, why hypnosis is so effective for lasting change, and much more. And now, it's time to listen and learn from Joshua. Welcome, Joshua.
2: Peter, Nicola, hello, glad to be here.
0: Well,
1: you know, Joshua, <laughs> you've ghost 82 books as of this date, I think. It's probably 83 by now. For CEOs and celebrities, entrepreneurs and politicians, and who knows who else, you've written three over 3,000 pieces of content, are considered the number one ghostwriter in the world. You're a certified hypnotist, a TEDx speaker, and I think I read you even play the guitar.
2: That's
0: right. Which would make you very likable for yeah. Peter, of course.
1: <laughs> I'm a longtime professional musician. so, And you're only... 31 or maybe you're 32, maybe you had a birthday I'm not, as of this recording. 32. Before we dig into all that though, please tell us where did all of this start?
2: It all started with homeschooling, frankly, because when you are homeschooled, pre-internet, you have a lot of time on your hands. Now there are so many resources that are available that it's sort of uh, uh, private tutor type of education that a lot of homeschoolers have. They have pods and they have co-ops. They've all sorts of things now, but in those days it was largely, okay, here's some VHS tapes, some cassettes, and then there's your lessons. And then uh, when you're done, well, you can go on and just uh, have that self teaching time. And one of the things that I found myself doing was reading the entire Encyclopedia Americana, uh, A through Z as a youngster. I found that to be exciting. We picked up this old set, of the 1976 uh, edition, a library book sale for something like 10 cents per book. So it was roughly a few dollars for that entire thing. And that was one of my hobbies as a a kid. And you learn a little bit about a lot reading the entire encyclopedia. And and this was very much also before the age of widespread socialization amongst uh, homeschoolers. And so having all the time on your hands, you learn a little bit about a lot, and then you're able to find more about what you're interested in. And the more you know, the more you can do with that information. And so I've been able to kind of spread out myself into different different regions in different ways. And that is particularly valuable with ghostwriting because no matter who I talk to, what their industry is, I know enough as a quote unquote beginner in their industry that I can speak with competence on behalf of the executive, on behalf of the president of the organization, on behalf of the entrepreneur or the investor.
1: Now you've got me Really curious because, in order to do, and we're going to cover this a little bit later, in order to do what you do, you have to really get inside other people's minds and you also have to have empathy. So, where did you? I can get that you were reading at a young age and did that. Did your parents teach you how other people think or empathy? Or how, where did you learn that? That's a major skill to have.
2: I did learn that through writing novels and studying how novels are written, how novels are structured. See, I am a three-time published novelist. I also have a nonfiction book, which maybe we can talk about. But that was my my initial ambition, was to write stories that would tell the truth. And that's what's interesting about fiction versus nonfiction. Nonfiction is not interesting if it tells the truth. Fiction is only interesting when it does tell the truth. And so having so much information I have access to, studying the encyclopedia, well, I wanted to... Share as much useful information as possible, and the best way to do that, in fact, is through fiction, not through nonfiction, for the most part. There are some interesting exceptions we can talk to, but all nonfiction is narrative. It's telling someone's uh, perspective, a bit like a documentary where it's designed to be uh, unidimensional persuasive, and nonfiction is like that. Good nonfiction that's popular, that sells well, which is interesting, but it's the novels that I want to write. And meeting quite a few both amateur aspiring novelists and multi-published novelists with myriad books to their name, you learn something interesting. The novelists with janky stories, to put it pleasantly, they focus on the premise. Hey, wouldn't it be cool if some point in the future this crazy thing happens? And they're all locked into the premise in the settings and the descriptions and world building. And characters, oh, you know, does this somebody, uh, well, uh, let's just pick her in, let's let's recreate Peter Parker in our universe. Yeah, exactly. As he is, because that's a character people like. Versus the successful novelists are all about the protagonist and the antagonist and their relationship. And how the antagonist is a superior version of the protagonist, but much better at coping, that is, they are much better at designing excuses and justifications for their sin, their immorality, their uh, unethical behavior. They're a uh, ends justify the means, whereas the protagonist does not believe that the ends justify the means, and so they're a weaker, much weaker version of the antagonist. And just that w- little description of the antagonist versus the protagonist allows us to now populate that information across all of our favorite media stories. And we realize, oh yeah, my favorite movie, my favorite novels, my favorite stories, that is exactly how they are. Huh, that's interesting. And it's in that context of a superior antagonist and the inferior protagonist who has to muster courage, teamwork, all these sorts of things. You learn a lot about human nature by writing novels that people enjoy reading.
0: I would like to just draw the attention to what's next, because we will come back later to the truth part that you just mentioned. But for our audience, I think the question of what's next and what should I do with my life can come up at different stages. And I think our audience would really be interested in in learning When did it first come up for you, cross your mind, and how did you go about it?
2: Yes, that is an excellent question because I had my what's next moment roughly 20 to 40 years before most people do. So I'm I'm a, a millennial, but the vast majority of my clients are the baby boomer generation or Gen X. So they're roughly 50 to almost 80 than kind of that 30-year that span, and it have been since the very beginning. My what's next was realizing after college coming into sort of a uh, tail end of a recession, when budgets were still tight and hiring was still close to non-existent. this idea that if you go to a good school, get a good grade, you'll get a good job, and you'll get good pay raises into perpetuity. It took me 11 months of employment at an Inc. 1000 company to realize that that was not the case whatsoever, and I was better off trusting in my own talent stack and my own knowledge base that I had built up at that time to see if I could add direct economic value to one-on-one clients, cut out the middle middleman, the middlewoman, the employer that was there. If I if I'm just delivering value directly to a customer to a client, well, what do I need an employer for? If I have one employer, that's risky. If I have ten clients, less risk. It just made sense at 21 years old. <laughs> At 21, to to do that. Now, I think it also is a matter of 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 generation, because people who had started their careers 20 years prior to to me, or, or, or older, were a bit further along, were a bit more entrenched in their lives. And the question of what's next has an interesting, uh, it's a union with mine, in that the people who have approached me to write books are at their what's next stage, and usually they will want to write a book for one of two reasons, and this is usually the the the, the nonfiction books that have a bit of memoir mashup to them, where they want to tell their story, the interesting version of their story, that is actually fun, not boring and autobiographical, like a Wikipedia entry. But they want to tell the story of who they are, where they've come from, where they've been and what they've gleaned. It's a reflection. It's their magnum opus of everything that they have done up to the present moment. And that has extreme beneficial value in industry in business for corporations to attract sales qualified leads to generate sales qualified leads for the entrepreneur's business for the owner's business. Like this is the way capital T capital W that we do things in this space based on my insights and my journey. So people say, I want to work with that company because of who that owner is who that founder is who that entrepreneur is based on their story. So that's one reason. The other reason that older individuals older than myself, reach out to me to be their nonfiction ghostwriter to write them a memoir mashup is because of where they're pivoting to a true what's next stage. What, what they want to do is they want to make clear for themselves and for their future business partners, future investors, future shareholders, future stakeholders, clients, customers, users, etc. How does it make sense for them to be pivoting into that space? It's like, wait, you did this thing for 20 years, 25 years, and now you're starting a consulting firm in this, what do you know about that? Know anything about that, at least from the resume perspective or the LinkedIn profile perspective. So what, what we're able to do in the book is we're able to tie together the what was, what was past, and what's now, what's new, what's next into a clear and coherent way. Great example of this is a very popular yoga influencer that I, I ghost wrote her book for. Sarah Beth Yoga is her, is her name. She's quite popular on YouTube. Her book is a true example of a what's next literary masterpiece. What she wants to be doing more of is holistic wellness, alternative wellness. Some might call it psychonautics using various plant medicine, other things for, for frankly, for in a therapeutic context, what the heck does a yoga influencer yoga teacher know about any of that is the natural question to ask. So what the book does is it ties those two things together. And as she markets her book, she seeds in the marketplace, that she is both an expert on yoga and its overlap, she makes that connection clean. So now, as she begins to talk more and more about this, and opens a retreat center, and does these wellness experiences and destinations and and whatnot, all this that's that's a new interest of hers. There is an overlap between them, and it's not wait, what are you doing? What are you talking about that for? That doesn't make any sense. So it's a it's a it's a it's a pivot. The, what what the book does and marketing the book allows them to make it versus like, I'm jumping ship and I've abandoned the last industry. Don't talk about that anymore. I'm interested in this now, which is very jarring and a great way to lose your audience.
0: Wow. I, I also love how you explained that in your TEDx talk from five years ago, which is really very well constructed. You went totally out of your comfort zone there, I think. But I would like to for you to speak a little bit about... How was that when you you created, wrote that TEDx talk and uh, with your what's next in mind and the five tips you give there?
2: Yes. So the context of the TEDx talk is what's called solopreneurship, creating your dream job from scratch. And the idea conveyed in the talk is that you do not need a go between a rent seeker or, or a rentier who's in the middle of who's extracting value from the relationship. If you have a service or a skill set that you can package, you can deliver that directly to the marketplace. Clients, you do not necessarily need an employer or agency or something like that as the go between, as the wall that's extracting value. And so the, the the five tips in a sequence are what is it that you're capable at? What are people already buying? How can you find what these people are? All, how can you find the people who are already buying services like the ones you can offer? How do you price them appropriately so that you can get your first few clients? How do you iterate and improve and expand, and then begin offering new services and, and cross sells and upsells to your existing base? It, 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 I like to think of it as um, micro entrepreneurship one hundred and one, but solopreneurship is a little bit more interesting, especially in kind of our freelance generation.
0: And this one thing stood out for me: How do you find the people? This is a big, big issue and question that our audience asks themselves. Should probably ask you: How do you find them?
2: Yes, in the context of yes, in the context of what, what's next, I talk to so many people who are they have a, a true passion and wealth of expertise in an area that has functional, emotional, and economic value to people. But they wonder, where, where, where do I find them? You know, I've I've privately helped and consulted with some friends pro bono on these issues and on these topics for a number of years now. I think I might actually like to uh, leave the eight to five behind, or at least turn a real side hustle into this thing, you know, while my eight to five and my, my, my W2 income and in career are going along well. Maybe I can even establish a beachhead, you might say, in this new opportunity that I can monetize and grow and have it be its own business. But I need leads, (laughs) to to, to put it Frank, I need leads. Where do I find these people? Well, there are two answers to where do I find my people in my what's next pivot. It's kind of like the people are the parachute. And before you jump, you kind of want to know that you have a parachute on and and how to pull the ripcord. In this metaphorical context, that's how do I reach them with a go-to-market strategy? There's two ways. One of which is based on demographics, and which it was one of which is based on psychographics. So demographics is just the facts about a customer. So who, what is the homogenous population? If you if you describe them, so for example, the typical person who reaches out to me is someone who is already hired. They've already they've already purchased some sort of content marketing service. They tend to be forty five to fifty nine. In a technical field, that usually have multiple secondary or multiple uh, post-secondary degrees credentials, be it an MD or an SCD or a PhD or multiple master's degrees. So I, I, I can get very specific in that regard. That I can I can describe. Oh, and by the way, another demographic feature is they have already been a purchaser of some sort of content marketing service. Maybe it's oh, I hired this freelancer a few years ago to write LinkedIn posts for me. Right? so they've already purchased the sort of thing that i as a nonfiction book ghostwriter would like to sell them it's much easier to sell to people who are used to buying your thing and that's one of the tips in the tedx talk is to sell what people are already buying with a superior version to it right the other is psychographics this is i like to call it the touchy feelies this is the beliefs and the values of the people and this is going to be much much broader so this is where I end up writing for someone who is 78 years old and is a venture capitalist and doesn't necessarily need the book to generate sales qualified leads. They want more of a memoir. And also the 21-year-old software entrepreneur who wants to go absolute bananas marketing his book on Instagram, on Facebook, on TikTok, on on social media platforms and leverage book sales into su- user signups for the app, for example, and so the 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 demogra- the the, um, the demographics are very different. What do the psychographics have in common? The psychographics have in common the following statement. No one's listening to me. No one's listening to me. And there is deep pain and a little bit of resentment and even envy behind that statement. So we're in the touchy-feely space. There's negative emotions. I have this amazing app, and I'm not getting anywhere near the attention it deserves. I feel bad about that. I need attention. First, it's a 78-year-old venture capitalist who's thinking i have all this wealth of expertise i need to pass on to the next generation but i'm the the senior citizen i'm the 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 old one i'm not as hip and cool as the kids anymore and i'm having trouble creating mentorship relationships with the with the the young guns in the organization for example and i want to make sure that my legacy is not twisted into something else so there's fear around that so those are demographics and having a sense of both of those, it's a bit of a yin and a yang, a bit of a, um, uh, a polarity there that can help you get a sense of who these people are and where to find them and how to talk about your thing to them to get their attention. There's demographics and there's psychographics, so there's not just one way to reach people, but there's different ways to talk about the message, so you can, frankly, find the largest total adjustable market you possibly can for your new endeavor.
0: Mm, mm. Thank you for that so for people that want to reach out to let's say uh, others that have already gone the path that they are thinking about going which is what you did I assume with the authors that you reached out to how specifically did you reach out to them what medium did you use Um, if you can talk a little bit about that.
2: Yes, I checked out, I I began early in my career when I thought maybe, maybe I can make something of this ghostwriting thing. What I did was I reached out to older established ghostwriters who seemed to be independently wealthy. So people who are independently wealthy tend to be able to be more honest because they're not necessarily at a financial disadvantage. Like, well, if, if I tell this guy this, then I might lose gigs right? So we don't necessarily want to reach out to that it might be I'm creating a competitor. So we want to avoid someone who would have that sort of fear or, or uncertainty, but somebody who's established enough and successful enough that they have a growth perspective rather than a scarcity perspective. So that was the first thing and just finding their contact forms on their website, reaching out. And even a few of them said, yeah, here's my phone number. Give me a call now. I'll chat with you. That was interesting. And then also subscribing to the email newsletters of successful authors, reaching out to them. Say, hey, wh- I, I'm curious, do you have anyone that you delegate to? You're you're shipping a lot of books. I see you having one book every two or three months. How are you doing that? Well, I have a, I have a team of contractors and independents, uh, including designers and, of course, ghostwriters. Like, Oh, that's interesting. So you, you begin to see the sort of people They may not necessarily be clients themselves when you're first reaching out. But the most important thing to figure out is, is there a market for what you're thinking about selling? See, most people get this backwards. They think in terms of, what can I sell? And then I'm going to sell that. I'm going to promote that. I'm going to make a big deal about building a whole business around that and printing a business and having a website, cute logo, tagline, and trademarking it. And are people actually going to buy this is, gosh, gee, golly whiz, I hope so is the marketing plan is the go-to-market strategy the market research the r d that's behind that it's it's preferable to find out who are the sort of people already buying the thing you could sell and then just sell a superior version of that
1: in your amazing book so good they call you a fake you state that persuasion is uh everything I'm so curious. How did you land on that idea? And then tell us, why did you become so passionate about persuasion? And Joshua, go as deep as you want. Love this subject.
2: Yes. Thank you. The passionate pursuit of persuasion is a good way to think of it. So it was, yeah, my interest in persuasion is entirely out of necessity. And so this is Another fundamental business lesson that's particularly useful to people who are in a pivot stage or transition stage of their lives, career-wise, where they're thinking, well, "What's next?" and what is a criterion amongst the successful pivot criteria is, I am able to make something of this. I'm able to have a have a successful go of this new endeavor, this new thing, whatever it's going to be. It's it's got to work, otherwise. Maybe you learned something, but it it may not have been a wise use of time, attention, resources, effort, and uh, opportunity cost Mm -hmm. is here. I learned that lesson myself when I was in my unusually early what's next stage. When I was marketing and selling my, my initial novels and I was going around accepting freelance writing clients and pretty much taking on anything I possibly could to scrape together a living, in order to follow my own advice, frankly, as a self-employed professional writer, I was writing resumes, I was writing eBooks, I was writing email sequences, I all of these sorts of things. But here's what's interesting. The clients that stuck with me and that I stuck with them and that the relationship was recurring, it was retainer, it was some semblance of a predictable revenue creation from a usually unpredictable business model such as freelancing. What I noticed is that They talked to me about the money i was generating for them the revenue that they were earning with what i had written for them and one of those early lessons was somebody who had told me hey josh you know that sales page you did for me and i'm thinking yeah that you paid me 200 for he said yeah so uh, i put it up there um, and we sold out in a couple of hours yeah i made a nice hundred grand now this is to keep in mind it was not a high it was not it was not a low margin product it was information product that this, that this fellow was selling, put it out there, you know, throw a few hundred dollars and ads to it. And he made a hundred thousand dollars with something that he had paid me $200 for. That's when I realized, Oh, I'm not in the business of writing. I am in the business of selling. And that was a lesson that there's what you think you're selling. And then there's what the clientele think they're buying. I think we should, Assume in this context that the customer is right. That is, the writing is not good if it's typo-free and perfectly grammatically correct. It's good if it sells something. And that lesson I have brought into book publishing, which is used to an emphasis on literary excellence over commercial viability, meaning, it's just so well written. It's just so beautiful. We could it, could it could win awards. Versus, is this going to sell like wildfire? Spreads, this book. Is it that powerful? Is it that useful? So the publishing industry is notorious for barely breaking even most of the time. 80 to 90% of, of book projects lose uh, money. Uh, The numbers is that approximately 60% of all traditionally published books from the major presses sell fewer than a a 1,000 copies in their lifetime. And so that, of course, is a dismal commercial failure, and roughly, I think it's 0.16% of all books sell more than 100,000 copies. So the publishing industry is not great at guessing what's going to be commercially viable because they're focused on sort of does it read well? Is it nice? Could it win awards? This sort of thing. Is the writing good? Rather, will the writing sell? Now, in my situation, the more clients I was able to make money, the more clients I would keep and the more clients I'd be able to get through referrals. Like, dude, this Joshua made me a lot of money. You got to check him out. And then she'd say, okay, great. You're, you're, you're hired. And there wasn't a focus on, well, let me see your portfolio. What do you charge per word? It was this guy's going to make me money, so I want to I want to hire him. Well, well, duh! It's a business. It's it's a good business decision the, because the financial value is there. So they don't have to they don't have to judge on the touchy feelies, It's well, this is going to work. So that's where the fundamentals of persuasion come in because persuasion is abstract. Writing that persuades someone to buy something that they have not yet decided to buy, and then they read something you've written and then they buy it. That's applied persuasion. That is a concrete version of persuasion. So I can write something, publish it on the internet, total strangers on the other side of the world read it and pay me $400 for it. And it took me two hours to to put together, like a a video course, for example. And I can sell that hundreds of times. I can sell it thousands of times. And that's the outcome of persuasion. And it's not just true for information products, it's true for anything else you want to sell. So I, I have learned that persuasive writing is the most valuable Internet age talent one can add to one's stack. Hmm.
1: Hmm. You know, we 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 met. Well, we hadn't actually met until Joshua Lysek got inside of my mind. <laughs> I,
2: you met me, and then many years later, I met you. you. Oh.
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and. I remember, this is this is actually a true story people might appreciate. I, I really, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning one time and I, I had been doing nothing but, but thinking about you, not just because how persuasive you are, but also because of your generosity and because you are majorly honest and that you are not a bullshitter and what you, from a person of my age, what I've been through my entire life, you're one of the full few people who is is not bullshitting and thus your your book let me get it here you know so good they they call you a fake is because that you must be a fake you couldn't be that good and of course well we all know the end of the story you actually are that good because you tell the truth and you really deliver so thank you for your generosity i really appreciate it but i really did wake up at three in the morning when i couldn't sleep and i'm going ah, nicholas going what are you doing i asked joshua he's inside my head
0: i wanted to have my husband back and you said no no
1: The point of this long diatribe, Joshua, is there is an incredible skill that I am trying to learn and that people can also try and learn. You have a way of persuading and selling and storytelling, some really subtle way of making people know about you without smarmy, over-the-top kind of overt selling. You just have some kind of a way. I, I would say the word is, it's enrolling. That would be the word. You have some kind of way of enrolling, and that must have to do with persuasion. I think that would be an incredible skill for anyone who's trying to reinvent their life and try and transform everything from emails to reaching out to other people, this ability to not be needy and to enroll people. Let's talk about that.
2: Yes, I think what you're getting to, Peter, first of all, I appreciate the, 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 the kind words there. They're, they're honest. It's bullshit free praise, which is always the best kind, always the best kind. There's being useful versus saying you are useful. And if you look at many successful internet marketers and self-promoters, whether they're using the new media of all sorts of e-tools, email being one of them, or they're using traditional media... The self-aggrandizers tend to talk about how great they are in first-person terms. Look, I did this. I did this. I'm so good. I did this. It is a lot of first-person sort of language. I tend to focus on being useful and use second-person language as much as possible. The you or the you all, second-person, singular, second-person, plural. And that alone is a useful shift that I learned from copywriting, where you want to use the second person to talk about how this is going to be useful to you, what you can use this for, what problems this can solve for you, how you know you need this, how you know there's things going on in your life that this is going to help solve. It's all about you. And so you can imagine this product, this service having excellent utility. You can imagine yourself implementing it. You can imagine yourself buying the course, following it, and getting the result that's promised. And it's not focusing on how great I am in my, all of my fantastic successes. Now, there is something to be said about authority, credibility, demonstrating expertise. That's where it is okay to talk about yourself. And you do, in fact, need to do a little bit of honest and direct and straightforward yes, I am as great as I think I am demonstration. And there's just enough of that flex It's all you need versus every other Post on your uh, every other post on your Instagram is you at a fascinating location, a five-star restaurant, or perhaps an expensive multi-million-dollar Mediterranean cruise over the summer. These sorts of things, which tend to create distance and separation, and they frankly can be tend to be anti-persuasive. The reason they can be anti-persuasive is because they it, it's saying um, you're nothing like me and I'm nothing like you. I'm so much better than you. Is the message? Is the message? Now there are some markets in which that can work. Because then what you're selling is a little bit of access to someone who's way more powerful and more important than you are. That tends to work not on customers I would like to have. (laughs) So I'm also aware of who I do not want to work with. And so I don't say the sort of things that attract those people. And I intentionally say the sort of things that will push them away. For example, I tend to not like to work with people who are very budget conscious, looking for an affordable ghostwriter or, you know, uh, let's say competitive pricing. And so those people are very, very concerned about maximizing ROI at the expense of everything else. And one of those maximizing IRR is spending as little as possible on their book project or whatever it is that they want. So I often talk about who should not write a book, how you know you should not write a book, how expensive it is to write a book, how expensive. And, and so I talk about these sorts of things that will say, well, I'm not going to hire that guy. And that's part of the message of so good they call you a fake is so good they call you out of budget so good they call you way too expensive so good they call you offensively priced so good they say that they were shocked by your pricing those are positive signs those are positive signs and as you're promoting yourself and as you're marketing and as you're beginning to make this transition into what you think could be your what's next and the right one for you Negative feedback is as useful as positive feedback. So if people you never want as customers are telling you that's not gonna work, that's a terrible idea, that's actually confirmation you keep going.
0: Do the same. <laughs> I totally, I'm totally with you there because it's not good if you say, oh, we're opening up our, our store here and we're selling to everybody, right? No, we actually reject people that we believe are not a good fit for our program, for the people that are in our program and working with us at this time, because we have a responsibility there. But I wanted to uh, point out and and really stress what you just said, because I think it's really important um, in writing and when you meet with people uh, in person is to speak less about I, listen more, and speak more about you and being being generally curious about the other person that you are in contact with. And that's exactly what you did. And that's why Peter, he always tells me, oh, there's another email from Joshua. He just makes me feel good. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing. Now, Joshua, another point in your book you also write that uh, hypnosis is the doorway to everything. And I'd love for you to go through that door and explain why that is.
2: Yes, you have a more sophisticated audience than, than most that I, I find myself talking to. So I don't need to say what hypnosis is not. I don't need to spend five minutes talking about what hypnosis is, is, is not. It's like, well, of course, it's not magic and tricks and mysticism and illusions and that, that sort of thing, right? Because there's a lot of things that people believe about hypnosis that aren't so. So there's a lot of unlearning that has to be done for most for most people. But I don't suspect that that's the case with, with you all. What I will get into is very briefly what hypnosis is. It's very simply altering someone's subconscious beliefs, behaviors, habits, values, opinions, so on and so forth, working with their subconscious mind, where the root of all of those things are. And then that resulting in conscious changes that happen almost automatically. Now that's a rather abstract. So we'll talk about it concretely. The most common applications of hypnosis in the clinical context, and by the way, hypnosis just celebrated its 200th birthday. Clinical hypnosis, that is it's used by therapists and psychologists. It goes back to France in 1823. For for 200 years, hypnosis has been used for dealing with anxiety and stress. It's been used for dealing with, frankly, weight and health, nutrition, diet, those sorts of issues. It's been used for sleep, sleep issues. And perhaps the most common one of all, quit smoking. Tobacco products, tobacco, smoking smoking addiction. Those are the most common reasons people seek the help of a hypnotist. Now, I will say something that most people have never heard about hypnosis before. It works so well, so it's a terrible business to be in for the vast majority of hypnotists. Therapy is similar to a recurring revenue product because what you're able to do as a therapist is you're continually able to dig, 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 dig. Always a new childhood trauma. Always a new soul tie. Always a new relationship. Oh, look what this person said. Look how they made me feel. It's a sort of a past focused perspective. And you can keep someone as a customer for a lifetime. It's an excellent business model especially if you're billing through their insurance in the United States, and the the person's not paying entirely out of pocket. It's a fantastic business model. Of course, it needs to work just enough or it needs to feel like it's working just enough, like we made some real progress today, the client says as leaving in tears feeling miserable about themselves. Hypnosis is a future-based perspective. But I wanna talk about how I feel. No, don't care. I wanna talk about what happened. Don't care. But I wanna, no, don't care. What do you want to feel? What do you want to change? How do you want things to be different? It's future focused. It's a visionary experience, which might make people think of manifestation or perhaps visualization, those sorts of maybe a little fluffy words, but we're now in a little bit into that space, but it's focused on what you want in the future. And you say in the future, well, I've seen myself not having to smoke eight packs a day. Okay, we can help you do that. And it's two sessions later, $200 a session, $400 later, you're able to cease smoking permanently and forever after paying $400. That is life-changing. That is almost miraculous. And yet not a great business model because the customer lifetime value is extremely low relative to that of a therapist. So most hypnotists, professional hypnotists you meet, they do it as a side hustle because they have a caregiver's heart. They will they would do it for free. Many times they give they give sessions away to free for free people who have some sort of an issue. And they have hearts of gold, all of these people, all of these people. They're as they're as they're as close to gods and goddesses on earth that you could possibly imagine, the average professional hypnotist that you meet, and what they've been able to accomplish. It's it's a typical series of case studies from, let's say, the National Guild of Hypnotists. Reading through it, you would would think that these were actual saints or some sort of miracle workers, what they're able to accomplish. And you would, of course, say, no way, that's gotta be fake. Now we return to so good, they they call you a fake. Now, hypnosis as a profession has great utility applying it in other areas, which is something that I like to do.
0: Exactly. And that leads to the next question. You are a master at hypno-writing. So what is hypno-writing and how does one learn hypno-writing?
2: Yes, we're going to use the word hypno in this context to mean directly addressing the subconscious mind, directly speaking to the subconscious mind. Because remember, that's where the behaviors, beliefs lie. That's where they're rooted. Now, see this little plant right here over my shoulder on the big cam over there. If I want to change its state, if I want to move it, if I want it to be somewhere different, metaphorically speaking, if we want our lives to be different, do you say, oh, I'm going to cut off a couple of those leaves and I'm going to cut it off right at the base and I'm going to put it over there in that other part of the, the, the yard where I can get more sun and more nutrients. Is that going to work or will that kill it? Will that be useless? Yeah, that is going to be similar to any to, to many sorts of conscious mind addressing work versus if we dig up the roots if we reach in gently very gently and pull it up by its roots and move the entire system roots first focusing on the roots not the leaves and the branches and then move it somewhere else it can thrive in that new place and it can thrive instantly and the branches and tree leaves won't notice anything different they'll think huh that's that's great things are better now don't know what happened I didn't get cut off or anything, or, or, or jostled. That was nice," says the leaves. And we're, we're, we're stretching the metaphor pretty far here, beyond its, you know, its practicality. But I think it still makes sense. So writing is that which speaks to the to the roots. The subconscious mind, understand, is between five and seven years old in all of us. So subconscious mind and conscious mind grow up together from infancy, and then right around age five, six, seven, the subconscious mind over here stops growing it, it retains that state while the conscious mind can use and can eventually do algebra and differential equations and calculus <laughs> and other things let's say the conscious mind can. But the subconscious stays in that space there. Hypno writing speaks to the inner child in all of us. That is, it speaks in language terminology that a five to seven year old can understand. Now what can a five, six and seven year old understand? I happen to have a five year old So I happen to know, and also through experience collecting along the way, that we need to use multi-sensory language. If I asked my son to um, tie your shoes, that's what? The child might say "Tie, tie my shoes, tie how, what? What is that? Tie my shoes. If the child hasn't learned that before, but if I say, In order to tie our shoes, we're going to hold with the left hand, the left shoelace. We're going with the right hand to hold the right shoelace like so. And you're then going to tie loop one over the other like this, crisscross, applesauce. Ha ha ha. We are are describing it, applesauce, right? You can smell it, you can taste it. It's multi-sensory language. And so notice that All of my sales pages for my products, inside of my courses and of course, inside my book, I use multisensory language. I talk about how it looks when you know it's working. I talk about how it feels when it doesn't work and why you want this to work instead. I talk about what you heard that made you realize that this was a problem. I use multisensory language, which is what the language of a five to seven year old understands, which is what your subconscious mind understands, which is where your beliefs, behaviors, so forth and so on are all rooted. And I want to transplant your state. Or rather, I want to transplant the plant of your existence. Okay, the metaphor is really broken at this point. But you can see, I want to transplant you from one state to another. I need to, I need to move your roots, not clip off your leaves and say, okay, I threw them over there. Good job. Mindset.
0: I love that. That metaphor is just working for me, replanting per- the roots. And
1: there's a perfect time for a, a Joshua Lysak plug because... You actually teach hypno-writing. I know that you you actually have a hypnotic thing that you sell, and you have whole bundles of stuff on Gumroad where you sell all kinds of stuff to teach people about uh, hypno-writing. And so I just want to give you a a plug for that because you're one of the best sources to learn how to do hypno-writing.
0: And we'll have all those sources on our website in the show notes of this episode.
1: Do you have anything you want to say about that, about the courses that you teach, Joshua? Uh,
2: yes, uh, thank you. I believe the one one of the ones that you're thinking of is called The Best Way to Copyright It, because I have I have a The Best Way to Say It, The Best Way writing series. And so there's The Best Way to Write It, there's the best way to market research it, there's they talk about how to basically apply my TEDx talk to your new idea that you have. And then there's the Best Way to Copyright It, as well. And that's part of what I call the Hypno Writing Bundle, which also includes um, an actual hypnosis track that I produced called Train Ride to Greatness. And the context there is it helps particularly writers or people who are stuck in something that they want to write. There's a little bit of writer's block going on because I talk about that. I, I deal with that so often in clients. I want to resolve that issue working with the subconscious mind rather than tell my client or tell potential clients, well, just write more, just try harder. Just use your mindset, <laughs> right? I want to actually solve the problem. That means working with the subconscious mind, taking them from where they are to where they want to go with as such of ease. It's, a, it's as if you're in a luxury car uh, on a train going on a nice little ride. Again, metaphorical language, language metaphor. This is why, by the way, that fiction, be it movies, be it novels, is a culture at large influencer. It's because we're able to create metaphors out of what we want people to believe to be true, and if you can do that, and you can get people to buy that, they will hypnotize themselves, or rather, they will change their beliefs, their behaviors, and their values, and so on and so forth. So, if you want to shape a, 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 a massive population, control their entertainment. Anyway, that's that's a little little rabbit hole that, that's possible to to to, to go down uh, at some point, uh, but it is it is my belief with some evidence behind it, that the vast majority of production companies understand this. And so they introduce the metaphorical language, the multisensory persuasion into their hypno writing, or perhaps their script writing or into their graphic novel design or into their their novelizations and so on and and so forth. Um, But once you understand this, you begin to see it everywhere. And we have a little bit of a lesson within the lesson because the way I explained hypnosis was using multi-sensory language. It was describing the roots of a plant versus talk to the subconscious mind. You can't imagine that like talk to the subconscious. How do you, how do you do that exactly? How, How does that work? Do you like, what, how do you do that versus imagine that your mind is a plant and the roots are and see, the, the metaphor just works. And now everyone who's listening that understands it. Oh, okay. So you can't just say, plant, go move over there. We're going to cut off its branches, of and leaves, and just throw it over there. That's like therapy. It doesn't work. It doesn't actually change where the plant's located. Gently pick it up by the roots, the same way that you would gently pick up a child. Metaphorical language, a good example right there. And now people understand hypnosis. Hmm.
0: Exactly. And repetition is sometimes really helpful, like what you did.
2: Yes, because if, and anyone who's talked to a five, six, seven year old child understands the short attention span. <laughs> Often they will lose attention span halfway through your sentence. Something else is interesting. They're, they're distracted because they're, they're sensory little sensory embodied little beings, the children five to seven. And you can be asking them something. And they've completely forgotten what it was you've asked before you even finished the question. Another now on something else and like, hey, I want to go play, play, uh, play make believe at this other thing. Over here. Let's go. Like, I was asking you to do something. And, and it's like shocked like you were. So understand that repetition has to be involved. So if, if you, if you think of your potential clients, the, the market as five, six, seven year old children, and you need to speak to them in that way with that repetition, with that type of communication, you'll win.
1: We're getting little low on time here, but in a couple of essential questions I really want to ask and also point out something that you are the number one ghostwriter in the world. But I want you to touch on on that skill of what ghostwriting is, uh, what a ghostwriter does, and what a ghostwriter can can do for uh, other people.
2: Yes. Yes. So the claim is not, interestingly enough, it's not one that I make, it's one that people make uh, about me. And so I'm quoting what other people are saying, oh yeah, Joshua Isaac is obviously the number one ghostwriter in the world and no, 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 no contest. And usually what goes into that is the quality of output I'm able to produce, that's quality with quantity that is unmatched. Many elite ghostwriters will do one book every couple of years. And it's like, it's all they'd focus on for, for three years, right? And, it, and it's, it's excellent. It's great. But to produce, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 commercially viable, life-changing transformative books a year. I'm so good they have to call me fake.
1: How do you do that? Do you have a whole team of people? Or are you just so fast that you can, can do this? There's some magic going on here, Joshua.
2: I follow my own advice. And in So Good They Call You a Fake, I teach that what looks like magic is in fact a honed system that is followed step-by-step step with no steps skipped. And in chapter eight, specifically, I teach one of the systems of writing books. The one, and this is the same system that I use two AT, but everything else leading up to chapter eight is what makes the system work. It makes it a workable system. It makes it one that you can apply, that you can follow, that you can implement. And it teaches you what your book needs to be and and do and cover. Then of course, the book talks about how to create courses, adapting material from the book and coaching and consulting and services and, and how to sell all of those right? Kind of like a business in a book. Maybe an MBA in 174 pages might be a good way of uh, thinking of so good they call you a fake. But the system is starting off not with what the author wants to say, but with what readers want to buy. That is, how have previous authors on this topic failed to deliver what they promised? So much so that even if they got so much else right in their book, their book received two, three, and four star reviews saying, I really wanted to like this book because I like the author and the message and so inspiring, blah, blah, blah. But they totally botched this claim of the subtitle. The subtitle says, how to A, B, C. You didn't cover A at all. B was mentioned offhand in the chapter and you told one story about C and recommended a different person's book to check out later. That's a lie. And obviously it was just clickbait or maybe read bait. In the case of a book that the publisher threw on there to try to trick people into buying it, and do a little bit sleight of hand, and like, well, you know, maybe people who figure this out will be able to how to A, B, and C themselves figure that out, even though the book doesn't cover that. So it's figuring out what do readers, again, TEDx talk in action, what do real customers want to buy? The demographics. What have they already bought? Why didn't it work? How can you do it better? Boom, there's your book idea.
0: I'm wondering, having written so many many books in in your life and with so many different topics, and then the question of our audience asking themselves the age-old question, who am I? I'm wondering, how has writing helped you know yourself?
2: The interesting answer that comes to mind is also an answer to, Joshua, does free will exist? So ghostwriting and free will come together in an interesting intersection right here at this question. You can probably imagine I ghostwrite quite a few philosophical treatises uh, and religious books, philosophical books, academic books. or books for people who are academics and want to infuse some of their philosophy into the book that's about marriage law, <laughs> for, for example, because what we now see work on is the memoir mashup. Remember, fiction can tell the truth. Nonfiction has to lie to be interesting. What if people want to tell the truth, but write nonfiction, they have to write a memoir or a memoir mashup, where they tell their story and they give useful, functionally valuable information. Now, that's the current state of the nonfiction book market for authentic authors who are telling the truth in the book. Everybody else, you can lie however much you want. (laughs) Reinforce what people want to believe. That's not so. I'd prefer not to write those kinds of books. But people have asked me, or I've had the conversations about free will, as one does when one writes the books that I do. What seems to be the case is the following. It feels like you have free will, and yet, You can't select an option you weren't aware of that was available to select. So at best we have something like a limited free will. Are you free to choose an option you didn't know that was there? Technically, yes. Practically, no, you weren't. Now, where does this and how does this come back to self-discovery? Most people have a self-concept that's based on their upbringing, based on their tribe, not literally tribe in this case, but the tribe of their religious upbringing, the tribe of politics, the tribe of their environment. And we all belong to many different tribes here in the 21st century, economic tribes, industry tribes. And as we become more and more aware of other tribes, and if you take on the persona, or in my case, I act in print because I have some professional acting experience. So I'm, I'm acting as my author clients in print. I become part of their tribe for a few months, or at least think like that. I become part of their tribes. And so I go from not knowing what I don't know to knowing what I don't know and then knowing it and in believing it, or at least functionally acting as if I do, and that I'm writing on behalf of my author client and making the persuasive argument in favor of their belief system. I'm adopting it. I'm portraying it with authenticity, like a good actor or actress does in which as you observe them, it you, you, you suspend the disbelief. I suspend my own disbelief. And so how ghostwriting has helped me develop and identify my own self-concept, it seems as though my free will to choose to believe, to choose to be, is greatly expanded beyond what the typical person has access to in a lifetime. The downside of that is it's very difficult to decide (laughs) because we know the more options you have, the more difficult the decision it is. If you give people two options, two purchases, you could buy the core product or you could buy the deluxe version, it's gonna be much easier to sell the deluxe version. Versus, well, we have the starter package and we have the standard and then we have premium, and then we have deluxe, and then we have the premium deluxe, and then we have the standard deluxe premium, but with it, but if you're moving to other part with a discount. That's me. That's my worldview, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, right uh, right there. Most people get the standard of the deluxe and they know because they have those two options. I could choose what my parents want me to do, or I could choose what my degree is in. And this is just this one example. But then when you have the standard, the basic deluxe, the premium, the premium deluxe, and the, it's just it, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> it's a bit of a uh, remember those old quilts from a, the 19th century and 18th century, where each of the quilts would be a square that just had a different pattern, different portrayal either with yarn or some sort of a fabric. That's my worldview. That's my worldview. Each of those quilts is a, is a is a it's a bit of a composite. It's a bit of a composite. Each person, I'm like a reverse or an inverse Horcrux, like the Lord Voldemort character from Harry Potter, where he takes a soul and he puts it into different pieces. I'm the inverse of that, and that I'm the composite or the mosaic. Or the inverted horcrux of every single author. I, I've, I've taken a part of their soul into mine uh, as, I've, as I've written for them. Because I have to in order to write authentically in their voice, believe what they do, suspend my own disbelief long enough to write with authenticity in that conversation for them. Or rather, in, in conversation
1: And it's amazing you haven't turned into multiple personalities. with
2: all- Haven't I?
1: The same, how you remain cohesive is... Absolutely
2: amazing. Or or, ha- or have I, Peter? Have I? Have exactly. <laughs>
0: I was just going to say, I mean, <laughs> acting experience, hypno, right? I mean, there I are know. many personalities. And
1: yeah. hey, Dan, this conversation is so great. However, what's the source of your inspiration? Who are your heroes?
2: I, you know, what's interesting is that I did a, an AMA on Twitter, now called The X Platform, and asked me anything. And that was one of the first questions that I got recently. Who are your heroes? Who who inspires you? Who do you look up to? And I began, I did a video-based answer, and I began it with, well, there's what someone is supposed to say, which is their tribe's heroes, be it religious or political, cultural, social, or familial. Obviously, that's who you're supposed to say. That is not who I selected. The individual or individuals I admire is the every man, is the every woman, is the every child, Who just keeps going they know what the right thing is to do and they do it they do it with consistency and they do it every day even if it doesn't seem like it's working even if it doesn't seem like it's paying off they just keep going because it's those people who have built civilization who maintain civilization and will keep civilization going it's not necessarily the dreamers or the people whose fast plans and missions and highlights and leadership qualities and traits books are written about or they write their own books or that they appear in all the historical textbooks it's the people who will never appear in historical textbooks it's the people who figured out how to bend the wood around the hull of a ship so that it would be able to hold itself together do we know that person's name who figured that out i I, I don't know that person's name But that'd be somebody. Who is the person who first figured out? And then we could pick an essential technology or an essential innovation or an essential belief who figured that out. And then now it's ubiquitous. We know of people like the the Steve Jobs kind of archetype this person who has this one big idea like the iPhone, and then now we all have a smartphone and that sort of thing. But who gave Steve Jobs that idea? Who is the intern? Who is the subcontractor? Now, I'm not hypothesizing or claiming that there was such a person. But we happen to know that it's the every man, the every woman, the every child who does their thing, who does their duty to themselves, and they behave with responsibility. That's the person I admire above all others. Beautiful,
0: wonderful. I love that. Yeah. Now, you being ahead of your time, as as we said at the beginning of this of this uh, podcast, what advice would you give someone in midlife? So a few years for you from now right a few more years Uh, so someone in midlife who is trying to find a new path and make significant decisions what advice would you give them
2: first advice is what not to do and the the advice what not to do is to avoid all hype at all costs someone hyping up this opportunity or that opportunity hyping up this thing you could do or that thing you could do. What you must first do is assess your risk profile. When you're 21 and going through your what's next, you have a much greater appetite for risk. When you're 51, 61, 71, even 41, your risk profile is different. Failure at 21 is, gee, I guess I have to get an 8-5 job for a few months. Failure at 61, I don't even have to say anything else about that. So you must assess your risk profile. And what is the best way to de-risk your what's next? One useful heuristic in the context of people who want to have a what's next, which is their own thing, their own business opportunity, their own self-employment, whatever that looks like. For a lot of people in that stage where they have less, a smaller risk Uh, a smaller appetite for risk is do not jump ship at your eight to five until your business has done two x meaning your take-home pay your profit not like top line revenue but like what you get paid from your side hustle or your self-employment exploits do not leave the eight to five until your self-employment is paying you two x what your eight to five is and has done so for at least a year That heuristic, that advice applies to people who have a smaller appetite for risk because there's so much that goes into a transition, but there's things that you can do to begin to de-risk in different ways. For example, you could do your market research first. What is it that people are buying that you think you might want to sell? Who's buying it? What's the homogenous population? How would you find them if you were to advertise for them? Demographically, psychographically? How often do they buy? Is it a recurring revenue type of situation? Is it once off? Is it could be a retainer sort of a service, for example, or is it just is it products? Is it a low margin, long sales cycle, one time purchase? Then it's probably a terrible idea to quit your job and do that. I've had that conversation with people. They had this passion product that they manufactured that took them 20 years and their you know, a home garage-based laboratory or maybe kind of their home-based assembly line that they have in their garage. I have to tell them you have very low margin on this. The sales cycle is long before someone will buy it because they've never heard of it. And they need to, they need to learn more about it first, and they need to be aware of they even have, have a problem that this product solves. And they'll only ever buy one because it's so good. So good ever, uh, so good they only ever buy one. Unfortunately, that's, that's probably not what you should be in the business of. Now, in my case, I do have a longer sales cycle. It is a mid-margin service ghostwriting is because there's so many fixed expenses associated with publishing a book that run in the thousands and even tens of thousands for most offers that are just part of the way of doing things here in this industry. But it's not often a one-time only purchase. My average client writes 1.5 books with me. So I have a lot of people who come back for more second book, third book, fourth book even, I've had people come back to me more. One person, six books I did with them. So I did not consciously become aware of this useful heuristic of de-risking, but I simply found my way into success, something close to accidentally, and I retraced my steps and I said, oh. I did a lot of things that didn't work this one did, meaning this sell what people are already buying concept. And that was professional writing, B2B and B2C writing that was selling something. And the book just so happens to be a high ticket service that I can provide that sells a client's company to investors, to stakeholders, stakeholders shareholders, and customers for 20 years. That's insanely valuable. And it's superior to marketing, in fact. The marketing shelf life is has a, has a very short expiration date. If you pay 10K a month for 10 months to do a marketing campaign, at the end of the 10th month, whatever you got is all you're ever gonna get. It expired. Pay 10K a month for 10 months to a ghostwriter, and the output of their work is going to last 20 years. And so it becomes infinitely cheaper from that perspective of 240, 250 months divided by hundred thousand. Oh wow, that's cheap. Or a hundred thousand divided into two hundred and fifty months of utility, getting getting value from it. Oh yeah, wow, that's cheap actually. And when you reclaim it in that context context.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we are totally on the same page about the risk part of things especially for people in midlife. That's why we always say our our second line is without putting your family finances or future at risk, but reinvent yourself before it's too late, right? Okay, I I think we are at the hour.
1: Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you really want our audience to know?
2: If there's a, there's a little bit of a little bit of a thread I'm going to tease this a little bit and see if it's see if it's here, see if it's here. is one you just presented to me is that you do not have forever to pursue a what's next. There is a window, there is a door and it's open for the possibility of what's next. but eventually it will close. It's like one of those doors that has has one of those mechanisms at the top, which if you you, you open it, it automatically closes. A what's next door is like that. Push on your what's next and it opens, but the mechanism at the top, like many doors, like security doors and, and office buildings and whatnot have, it's going to close. And so the feedback is straightforward. Peek through it as quickly as possible to see if there's something there, meaning Follow the what's next brand and advice, and Peter and and Nicola, and do as they advise. Because there comes a point when you can't anymore. You wish you had, it's too late, and you will live with nothing but regret. That's a a little bit of a, a dark and yet realistic close. There is real urgency to pursuing your what's next. Or at the very least, seeing what could be one of your perhaps multiple what's nexts. My journey of finding it at 21 is different and not useful from the perspective of just do what I did. But there would have come a point when it was too late to do what I did. And it will be too late to do what you think you might be able to do, and then you won't anymore, and that would be sad, and I don't want you to be sad.
1: Beautifully said, Joshua.
0: And thank you so much, as I said. We are on the same page, and we can both help people in midlife to advance. So thank you for this interview and conversation more, as we like to say. And I'd love to do that again. Mm -hmm. Would be fun.
2: My pleasure.
1: We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, could you do us a favor and hit the like button and subscribe to our channel? It will help the channel grow and get more amazing guests like Joshua. To learn more about Joshua, head to whatsnext.com forward slash 40, where we share links and more. Again, that's whatsnext.com forward slash 40
0: Thanks for joining us today, and please, Share this episode with someone you care about, someone who might be contemplating becoming an authority in their field, or who would simply like to learn more about hypno writing. And if you're trying to figure out what's next for you, join us for our upcoming live online workshop, where we teach how to successfully reinvent your life and career in midlife in five steps. To save your spot, go to whatsnext.com forward slash workshops. We'll see you there or for another episode here.